By now you'll have heard or seen that I'm working with a new golf app called Tangent, who are also sponsoring this show. It's the smartest AI caddy in golf and is able to recommend not only clubs to hit, but target locations based on the math behind strokes gained and your own personal shot patterns. Unlike many other shot trackers, it also takes into account and adjusts for hazards that are out there. It has sensorless tracking with an amazing automatic swing detection that you can use with your Apple Watch or your phone without any need to buy any attachments for your clubs. And my favorite part, the post-round analysis data helps you immediately see where you can improve and gives you simple breakdowns that you can dive into if you want much more detail about your stats. It then links this data to recommendations and actual practice drills that you can use to improve. Getting measurable data for both on-course and practice drills makes Tangent one of the best game improvement ecosystems that I've ever seen. So download Tangent for free on the Apple App Store or at tangent.golf and use promo code SWEET30, that's S-W-E-E-T-3-0, for 30% off. So you'll get a free trial, and if you like it and want to continue, it'll give you 30% off a subscription. So just try it out, play a few rounds with it, and I know you'll love it. So that's Tangent, T-A-N-G-E-N-T, and enter code SWEET30. Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is John Sherman from Practical Golf, and as always, I'm joined by... Adam from Adam Young Golf. We talk a lot about impact laws. Is that is that the term we like to use, Adam? Yeah, I'm good with that. Okay. So yeah, we, we try and educate people on what's going on at impact in various episodes. And you and I have been talking about this separately, like what ideas we can do for episodes. And we thought it would be a good idea to tackle some of these topics separately just to kind of educate people, answer a lot of questions. I think people hear terms like swing path and swing direction and angle of attack, and they don't quite know what they mean or what ramifications they have for their ball striking. And not that people need to be experts on this stuff, but I've found that as I've learned more about them and certainly other people who follow me or you learn about them more, they're like, oh, that makes sense. Now I know how to work on that at the range a bit more, understand why my golf ball is doing what it's doing. So to that end, what are we talking about today? Well, yeah, you were talking about club path and swing direction. So yeah, what I was thinking of when you were saying that stuff is that, you know, most people are practicing on launch monitors these days, or a lot of people are, a lot of our listeners especially, and sure. so they're seeing these different terms, right? They're seeing swing path, swing direction, or club path, swing direction. I remember when we first had a track, man, this was probably like 12 years ago, we were looking at these things as coaches and what is the difference? What could possibly be the difference between them? And I had it explained to me and I didn't understand it the first time I had it explained. So hopefully we'll give a, a good enough explanation in this podcast that all the listeners can certainly understand it or at least get the seeds sown in their brain to to understand it better. But what about yourself, John? Do you, do you understand the difference between swing path and swing direction not as well as i should <laughs> i mean i was <laughs> i was actually on the track man site kind of going over it again again i'm not someone who i've only been on a track man like i don't know five times in my life and i'm not someone who i have a launch monitor but it doesn't give me club head data so i've learned 
the ball flight laws and talk about them, but I've mostly focused just on swing path. Yeah. And I think swing direction absolutely can confuse people. And I'm going to defer to you to, to explain it rather than me, because I think the more and more you think about a topic, read about it, explain it to other people, like eventually your explanation gets more and more simple <laughs> because you're seeing how people react to you and they, they ask you follow-up questions. I have not done that with Swing Direction. I endlessly talk about my swing path on this show, and I probably am joking at this point that people are sick of hearing about my swing path. It probably will come up in this episode, so apologies in advance, but why don't we start there? I'm looking... You've provided me with an ample list of notes. Yeah. And then you notified me before the show that it's actually even longer than what I'm looking at, (laughs) so I don't have the full entirety of what you're going to discuss here, and hopefully I'll have some interjections if I don't. I think this will be more of an Adam Young episode and I'll have maybe some thoughts, but do we want to start off there? Just a simple explanation. What is the difference between swing path and swing direction? Well, even there on the terminology, swing, technically swing club path. path. Sorry, club yeah, path. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I and so I, and honestly, I may even make this mistake during the podcast. So swing path and swing direction are effectively the same thing. Club path and swing direction are different. So what I'll say to the listeners is anytime you hear me use the term or or yourself use the term path, path, whichever way, so path is, we're talking more about what's happening at impact. What is the club doing at impact? Whenever we use the term direction, swing direction, we're talking more about the overall shape of the plane or the where the plane is going. So I know that sounds confusing. So I'll go to the analogy I've used in a previous episode of a Ferris wheel. So if you imagine a huge Ferris wheel, it's very vertical and it's, well, it's completely vertical, hopefully. <laughs> All the carriages are moving basically in, in the same direction, you would say. The Ferris wheel is pointed in the same direction. Imagine it's going out to the ocean. It's on a pier. And we can turn that Ferris wheel more to the right or to the left if we wanted to. I mean, if we had big enough equipment. So that is swing direction. If we were to turn or point the Ferris wheel in different directions, that's swing direction. Now, if we were to tilt that Ferris wheel, say 45 degrees, we'd probably frighten the hell out of everybody who's on it, but you call that plane or the plane of it. So instead of it being 90 degrees, now we tilt it 45 degrees. So you'd say it's a 45 degree swing plane. Now, if you think about each individual carriage, now that that Ferris wheel is tilted, think about each individual carriage on that Ferris wheel. As they're going around the tilted Ferris wheel, they're all going to be moving in different directions. So the people moving down, they're on the downward part of the Ferris wheel, they're going to be moving down and actually slightly to the right. They could be moving down and out, you might say. The people at the very bottom of the Ferris wheel, you call that the low point of the swing, they're going to be moving neither up nor down, and they're going to be traveling in the same direction as where the Ferris wheel is pointing. And on the other side, the people who are starting to move upwards, up on the Ferris wheel, they're going to be moving more up and in, or up and to the left 
of the Ferris wheel. So even though the Ferris wheel is pointed in the same direction, because it's tilted, the different carriages are moving in different directions. Does that make sense? Yeah, finish this up and I'll think about maybe my thought is the hula hoop and ball position, but continue that. That does make sense to me how it it's in one direction, which I guess is the swing direction. And then, but the path can be different on depending on where you're situated on the actual Ferris wheel. Exactly. Yeah. And so, and so the path would be where the individual carriages are moving at any one point in time. So yeah, the tilt of the Ferris wheel, that would be swing plane. The Ferris wheel direction would be swing direction and the different carriages moving in different directions. They would be swing path. Oh, club path. Sorry, I did it. <laughs> club path. Let's just say path. <laughs> yeah, just path. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, this is, uh, it, it's kind of complex to understand. I do have more visuals, obviously, in some of my programs. Next Level Golf, I have a whole module on this stuff, and it is easier to understand visually. But, yeah, you can use different ideas, like a tilted dinner plate as well. So if you get a dinner plate and tilt it 45 degrees and just imagine different points in the plate, which tangentially from different points in the plate, they're moving in different directions, even though the plate, you're not moving it right or left. Or the hula hoop analogy, you know, moving the hula hoop more right or left, and different points on the hula hoop are moving more right and left as well, of that, of that same hula hoop direction. To be quite honest, I haven't really given much thought to swing direction ever. I've always just been conscious of the path and the curvature of the ball, and that's like the term that I've just used again as a kind of a cue for me, but I'm just paying attention to the curvature of the ball. And I know as I make my internal adjustments on what I have to do to either usually reduce curvature, I'm thinking about path. Is is one or the other important to think about or does it really not even matter? I mean, we're, we're kind of defining them, but I'm thinking of more of a the actual implementation of it when you're practicing or on the course? Like, do you think about swing direction ever or are you just focused on path? Well, one of my friends, Liam Mucklow, I always remember him saying this. He said, club path is what the ball sees and feels, whereas swing direction is more what the golfer feels. So it's That's a really good explanation. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, ex- exactly. And And they're not, they're not the same, but they are very closely correlated. If I got a hundred golfers and made them all swing more to the left, their paths would very likely all move to the left. Definitely as an average, the path would move more to the left. So you could say the more left you swing, the more left the club path is as well. So there, it is very fortunate in that regard. So yeah, you, you can just really focus on club path for the most part. But you will run into certain scenarios where they'll be different. So, for example, lots of people talk about divots and how divots lie. And there are certain scenarios where your divot could point to the left, and yet your club path can be in to out. And you can hit a draw. I remember seeing this before I understood all of this stuff. I remember seeing this with my friend. He used to be a very steep player. You know, his low point was really far ahead of the golf ball. And he would make these divots that would point, you know, maybe two, three, five degrees to the left, maybe. Yet he'd hit these draws that would start right and draw onto the target. And it really baffled me at the time. But now I understand it. And so basically, he's got his Ferris wheel pointing to the left. 
but he's got the ball in such a far back position relative to the low point that that carriage or the club path is moving more to the right of the overall Ferris wheel. So is it safe to say that the divot direction is a better indication of swing direction? Yeah. Most of the time path as well, but sometimes they can diverge. Because like for me, for example, all of my divots are pointing to the right. So my swing direction right. and path I know are, are going in the, that same direction into out. And that's the overall movement of the club in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. I would definitely say, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a better indication of swing direction. What you can say is for a good player with irons, because we're always hitting the ball you know, before low point, right? We're hitting, the club is moving down as it's contacting the ball. So you could say that whichever direction your divot is going, your path is more to the right of that. Okay, so if your divots are straight and you've hit ball first, then turf, your path is in to out. You're more likely a push, draw, hook pattern player. The only problem with that is divots can be messy, you know, because it's occurring after impact. The collision with the club and the ball itself is going to move the divot offline. There can be a lot of deflection post-impact. And also, you know, the divot is happening after impact. So what's happening before it, that's where the impact collision is or should be, <laughs> you know, for every golfer. And you can also run into the opposite scenario where when we're hitting up on a driver, for example, when you're hitting up on it, those carriages are moving more up and left on our tilted plane. And so you might see a scenario where on a track man, it might say your swing direction is to the right, but your club path is neutral or even slightly to the left. I'm in that scenario. My club path is very neutral, even though I can swing up to 10 degrees to the right. So yeah, they can, they can be different and that can be confusing when you're looking at the numbers on your own and like, oh, what do I, what do I do? What do I change? Club path is the most, is, is more important because that's what the ball experiences effectively. The amount of times that I have been on launch monitors that do give me that information, whether it's the GC quad, track man or flight scope, always just looking, the path is the one that I'm kind of benchmarking and looking at. But to be quite honest, that's not something I, you know, I only check in on that once every year or so it's not something i not that i'm we did an episode on launch monitors and you can go back to that just a reminder to everyone listening if this is your first episode the sweet spot is an evergreen show so we're just trying to create this library of topics that you can go through there's no order but a couple of the things you said was definitely on our driver episode with the ferris wheel and hitting up on it and how that changed it and then we did talk about our thoughts on using launch monitors productively and yeah, I think if I was talking to people, not that I'm a swing instructor, I would say like, yeah, just focus on that path number and the curvature of your golf ball, which we're going to get into and how they kind of correspond to one another. In my opinion, that's an easier thing to digest. Mm -hmm. So John, what does club path affect? Mostly curvature of the ball. We now know that when I was growing up, we thought that the path of the club was mainly the determinant of the starting direction of the ball. And that screwed me up a bit for a long time when I was a junior golfer. But we now know that as loft decreases, so for longer irons, driver, the face angle is the determinant or mostly the determinant of where the ball's starting. And then the matchup with the path of the club is going to determine how it curves or how much. So I, when I hear 
path, I'm mostly thinking of curvature, not necessarily start direction. I know it does have influence on it, but not nearly as much as the the face angle where the club face is pointing at impact. Definitely, yeah. I mean, the main it affects the curve of the shot, all else being equal. It can affect the start direction, although much less so than the club face direction would. The club face is a bigger determinant of start direction. But basically, I mean, it's going to determine your shot shape. So your on-target golf shots, how they curve to get there is going to be determined by the path. So if you want to hit a draw onto your targets for whatever reason, then you're going to have to have an in-to-out club path. And if you want to hit fades onto your target, you're going to have to have an out-to-in path. It's, there's no there's no ifs or buts with that. It's physics. Okay, the only if or but with that would be a gear effect with the bigger-headed clubs. Here's another one. What about when the face gets outside of the path? Like if you're in-to-out, two degrees, but then the face is three degrees open to the target. Couldn't you hit a, a push slice there, like a double cross type shot? Oh, yeah, but that's why I prefaced it by saying you're, you're on target shots. Yes, okay. Be. So, yeah, if you want to hit a shot, you can hit a, a hook with an out to in path. Yes. You can hit a hook, but it's going to be a pole hook. <laughs> it's not going to be a hook that lands on the target or draw that lands onto the target. I think I might be heading in that territory where my I'm hitting these like push fades sometimes with my in to out swing path, and I'm just my alignment is changing, and I'm going with it. We talked about this in another episode, but some people have. I know there's pro golfers who played their whole careers like hitting a controlled like push fade or pull hook. And just the way they align themselves, it just works for them, which is, you know, you can go back to our alignment episode to hear our thoughts on how personal that can be. Yeah, we can, it's just options, right? If, you're, if your path is a certain way, you can change it through swing, you can change it through alignment even. So in terms of the how it affects the curve of the shot or the outcome, say you would take a robot that had zero path and zero face. So on average, it's hitting these perfectly straight shots towards a target. Well, if you then kept the face exactly the same and made the path one degree more offline, the ball would start to curve in the air because now there's a separation between the path and face. So you're going to get some rubbing across the ball effectively, some, some cutting across it. So for every degree that you change the path in isolation, the ball will curve about 1% with wedges around about 2% with, say, a 6-iron, and it'll curve 4% with a driver, around about these numbers. They're not exact because there's lots of nuances, but they're pretty good approximations here. So what does that mean? Well, say you had a zero face and your path was one degree to the right. Well, at 100 yards, if you're hitting a wedge, it's only going to curve one yard offline, or it's just going to have one, one yard of curvature to it. It's barely noticeable. Now, if you're hitting a six iron, 180 yards, the same impact conditions are going to have 3.6 yards of curve using the, the number that I said. So almost four times as much as, as a wedge, four times the curvature of a wedge. And if you do it with a driver and you're hitting it 250, you'd have 10 yards of curve. So the same impact conditions, path and face, is going to curve one yard with a wedge almost four yards with a six iron and 10 yards with a driver. So 10 times as much curvature with a driver as with a wedge for the same impact conditions effectively. Which I think people 
as they've played this game can understand that it's just way harder to bend unless you're Bubba Watson at that that shot he hit in the Masters with his gap wedge. It's much harder to bend a higher lofted club than a lower lofted club. Most people are struggling with excessive curvature with their driver, not their sand wedge. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's harder to curve it, you know, the total amount and just as a, as a percentage as well. So yeah, I mean, this is why you get a lot of people say, oh, I'm straight with my wedges, I'm straight up to eight iron, and then my driver carves off to the right. Well, it might be you're doing the same thing with every club. You're just getting that bigger curvature with the driver. And the reason for that is there's lower spin loft. I don't want to go too much into that. You can kind of ignore it if you don't understand it at the moment, but there's there's less spin loft with a driver compared to a wedge. So any side to side, you know, path and face variance is going to produce more tilting of the spin axis. So I know that's very deep. I know that's going to make lots of people people's eyes glaze over, but you don't have to know that. That's just for the geeks out there that really want the in-depth information. The next thing we talked about was how it changes start direction. So again, if you took that robot that was starting the ball online, zero path, zero face, starting it online, hitting straight shots, when you change that path in isolation, you make that path one degree more to the left, the start direction will change as well. Now, it won't start one degree more to the left. It'll actually only start quarter of a degree more to the left. A roundabout. It does depend on the club. It does depend on things like friction as well. But you could say, you know, it's the path dictates around about 20 to 40% of the start direction overall. So we'll just kind of take a middle point there, maybe 30%. So really, if you want to start the ball one degree offline through path alone, you'd actually have to swing three degrees or you'd have to get the club path moving three degrees offline if we were to do these things in isolation. Most people don't, (laughs) but uh, if you were to take this kind of robot analogy just to isolate these variables, it's not a huge dictator of start direction and unfortunately i think for most golfers instinctively they feel like it should be the bigger determinant right yeah well that's the classic scenario which we've discussed is is the slicer who starts trying to swing even more left in an attempt to get the ball to start to the left so they could have this ball that starts to the left of their target and curves back to it but what they're doing is really increasing the separation of their swing path and face angle, and it just curves even more. Exactly. I think a lot of people understand these things differently. The way I think about club path and curvature is that the more separation there is between where the club face is pointing at impact, which is, as we said, the bigger influence on start direction, the more it separates from the path, the more curvature you have on the golf ball. And that's where the big problems happen. So you get all these questions. We've got a lot of questions on Twitter saying like, well, some people say like, oh, should I aspire to a zero out club path to reduce curvature? I don't think that necessarily is your answer because if you can't control the face, you still could hit shots that curve all over the place. As you said, like if your face, you know, let's say your, your swing path was zero, but your face was pointing five degrees to the right or left. Now you've got that separation and you're going to get shots that are curving offline a bit which is why the more I learned, I'm like, well, it seems to me that controlling face angle is really the secret sauce because that can work with any type of club path. That was like the number one question we got on Twitter is like, how do you deal with excessive 
club path. Can you play with it? How do you fix it? And I think we're going to get to that. So sorry, I jumped the gun a bit. No, no, it's a nice intro to that point. Definitely. Yeah, we will get to that. But yeah, I I agree with you completely. But on your point of the slicer, you know, who's the ball is carving off to the right, their instinct usually tells them swing more left. And that's just, it, it doesn't really, in isolation, it doesn't start the ball too much more to the left. So they end up, if anything, curving it more to the right. I mean, in reality, when people swing more to the left, usually they drag the face more left as yeah, well. Yeah, the face so will they, close down a bit, right? Exactly, yeah. But, you know, usually it's not enough. There's, there are better ways of fixing that big carving slice because there are more ways that will produce a more efficient ball flight in terms of getting more distance out there. But this is why it's so important and why we bash on all the time about how important it is to understand impact laws. If you can understand path and face, then that helps you when you're going out there. Instead of using instinct to fix your ball flight, which which can often get you in trouble, you're now using logic and physics, which is going to get you to the right answer better. Now, I know obviously in these podcasts, we might talk for three hours, four hours about these things. So we're going so in depth in these things, way beyond what you probably need. But, you know, it's a podcast. Some people want to listen to this in depth. But yeah, you can boil it at, at the same time. You can boil it down into simple laws. If you want the outcome to be more left, close the face a little bit more. If you want to be the, the outcome to be more right, open the face more at impact. If you want the ball to curve more right or left to your target, then you change the path. And the rule is you change it in the opposite direction to what you want it to curve. So they can be boiled down to simple laws, really. I think it's very simple to think of terms of what you said in the beginning club path you want to hit a draw your path needs to be in to out you want to hit a fade your path needs to be out to in and for those to be functional the club face needs to be pointing somewhere in between the path and the target at impact again based on whether it's a driver or an eight iron that could differ a little bit but for the most part if you want to hit functional golf shots that start to the left or right of your target and curve back, then yeah, you've got to get that club face pointing somewhere in between the path and the target. And that's when we could talk about shifting path and going back and forth between in to out and out to in. I think that's where a lot of people, why we always talk about playing one shot shape and why I play one shot shape is that I find when you try and change your path to the opposite direction. So for me to go from in to out to out to in, my face angle gets very confused. And that's when I start hitting those like double crosses and big blocks. Like that's why I don't even mess with trying to hit fades because I feel that because my path and most golfers path is is more consistent, I'd rather keep that match up and work on the face angle rather than trying to confuse all that. That to me is where I don't want to pick on Rory because he just won the FedEx cup again, but he was talking about another instance, his natural instincts is to hit it into out and a draw. And he was talking about double crossing one earlier in the tournament where he tried to hit a baby fade and he didn't commit to it and double crossed it. I would love Rory to just play his into out beautiful swing rather than trying to work it in both directions. I've just seen so many double crosses from him over the year. I'm sure people will skewer me for that, but that's why like I believe in, I think we all have DNAs in terms of our path, what's comfortable to us. And when you can get that face angle 
functional with that. I don't want to mess with it that much and move it around. That's a bit of an aside there, but I figure I'd just throw that in. <laughs> no, I think it's an important point. I mean, when you change face angle, usually you're just changing face angle. Not a lot of other impact variables change with that. Depends yep. how you do it, but in general, it can be changing face angle can be as, something as simple as just opening the face at a dress, then gripping it. <laughs> it really can be. Whereas when you change path, in general, that tends to be a much bigger change, a much bigger Absolutely. movement change, yeah. In terms of, you know, you it may have to change your entire, how your body sequences. And like you said, you know, everybody has these DNAs, the swing DNA, you know, where our power sources come from. We train, especially with an elite golfer, they train so many reps that their body sequences a certain way it's very strong for that certain sequence as well and to try and change that might be taking them into weaker territories where they might lose speed it changes angle of attack and low point as well and it can often when you change path or change swing direction and path it can change strike location it affects face angle as well so usually i would say if you take golfers and you change their path or swing direction you're going to see much more inconsistency start to occur with other variables. Now, that's not to say you should never change your path and swing direction. There are instances where it might be good for you long-term, but I usually see it as a long-term thing, not something you should be doing before a round of golf kind of thing. Absolutely. All right, so we talked about curvature, start direction, and the relative percentages. I mean, the biggest questions we got on Twitter and people always want to know is like, well, how do I change my path? Because obviously, the solution for the player who has the extreme path, who's slicing it or hooking it to death, one of the solutions is to neutralize that swing path to make it less extreme. And that will, all things being equal, if the face angle presentation is the same, that will make that banana slice turn into more of a controlled fade. And there's no right answer because we got asked on Twitter over and over again, can I play golf with an extreme path? Yes, I think you can. Should you play with an extreme path? I mean, I think all things being equal, and I'm a perfect example of that, learning to change path, neutralize it, and certainly understanding what it feels like in the complete opposite direction as a reference point, I believe that can bring your ball striking to a next level. Not a necessity, but it's, I think if I'm answering in generic terms and like, yeah, I think learning to have a less extreme club path for someone who's struggling with slices or hooks is a very good thing to pursue. Would, would, do you agree or disagree with that? That's the question I want yeah. to ask before we go into how to change it. Yeah, it's first you. <laughs> we should ask like, well, yeah, should you or why? Yeah, why change it? Yep. So what you're talking about there is the ability to feel the other extreme as well. So you can kind of neutralize an extreme shot shape. Why would you want to neutralize an extreme? So say, say someone does hook it 60 yards onto their target. What would be a scenario, do you think, where you'd want to change that? Like, why would you want to change them in a 60-yard hook onto the target? We are going to take a quick break there, and we will be right back. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. 
LinkedIn is not just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you cannot find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to a new perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. Also on LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Just recently, they even launched a new feature that helps you write your job description, making the process even easier and quicker. And they know that small business owners like myself and Adam are wearing so many hats and might not have the resources to hire, so it's a great place to get help. Now here's what you can do. Post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. That's linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. We have an exclusive offer on one of my favorite golf shoe brands, True Linkswear. They just released their new Lux G Shoes, which is their first big release of 2024, and it is packed with a ton of features. The Lux G is available in both men's and women's models, and it combines tour level performance with a new fit and feel. You'll get the comfort that True Linkswear is known for with their Wonderlux midsole for a supportive yet comfortable ride. The Lux G is also fully waterproof with a two-year warranty, and they have designed it with their padded heel lock system to ensure stability throughout the entire golf swing. But they didn't stop there. True Linkswear always pays attention to the small details. There's padding on the back to prevent rubbing against your foot, an antimicrobial comfort insole, and the Lux G's come in multiple colors. Sweet Spot listeners can get 15% off the Lux G shoes by visiting truelinkswear.com and using promo code SWEETSPOT. Once again, that's truelinkswear.com and use promo code SWEETSPOT, that's one word, to get 15% off their new Lux G shoes. Well, I, as somebody who played a really big hook, I can tell you a few scenarios. I mean, first is just, it's hard to hit greens that way. I think the ball's coming in like a missile. I've found that as I reduce the curvature of my shots on the course, it helped me control it more. I mean, in one instance, it's certainly like tree-lined golf courses. Like you don't have the opportunity to hit a 60-yard hook on a lot of courses. You know, a lot of people do play narrow courses, so you can't curve it that much. I think for approach shots, it helped me, just speaking anecdotally, hold more greens. Again. There are examples of players, we always mention Bubba Watson, who can bend the crap out of the ball. But he has, I think, exceptional, I would argue that his face angle control is probably the best in the world or top five. It's got to be for him to do all those shapes. So, yeah, I think it's harder to play golf with an extreme curvature. And I guess you have two answers to that solution is either reduce the path a bit or get better at controlling the face or maybe a mixture of both yeah i mean if your path is severely offline the only way you can hit functional shots is your ball has to start offline you know if your path say was 10 degrees into out well in order to make that functional with a six iron you're going to have to have the face five degrees open yeah and what that's going to mean Every time someone says open, I always think I always think of it as five degrees close to the target yeah. because yeah. I got so screwed up as a kid by thinking of the club face open. For me, that was my cue of open to the target, not the path. So I'd be 
trying to hit these fades with a club face that was wide open to the target. So it would just be these big blocks. And now I play golf with that same thought. I'm just from a draw pattern. So I can start the ball to the right of my target and curve it back. It's funny when I don't know if anyone else is like that. But yeah, when you say like, if your path is 10 degrees out to in, you need to present the club face five degrees close to the target, but five degrees open to your path, correct? Which is in the middle of the two. Yes, exactly. Yeah. You're right. I mean, this stuff, it can get, when you talk about open, it's like open to what? Open exactly. To target, open, open to, to what? <laughs> yeah. So what I'll do from now on, I'll try to use numbers instead. So say, say your path is plus 10, you would need the face plus five in order to hit a functional shot with a six iron. Now, what that would mean is that although it's a functional draw shot, your ball is going to probably be starting plus six, plus seven, maybe plus eight. Now that's fine, unless you go and play Edgewood. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's it's a lot of. <laughs> I think it becomes harder in wind. You know, when you're hitting into, you can go back to our episode with the ping guys and the ball dynamic data. If you're someone like me who plays in the wind quite a bit, or I'm sure you growing up, if you're hitting into a headwind, that exacerbates curvature. So if if you're hitting this big hook or fade into the wind, it's just going to be even more. So I think it hinders you in the wind. I think it hinders you on tight golf courses. Not to say you can't do it. I did it for a while. It just, I think you're going to have a ceiling on your scoring ability is what I'm trying to say, if that makes sense. The extreme scenario is Edgewood in Tahoe. I went to play that a few months ago and that, off the back tees was just the tightest fair uh, tree line fairways especially with myself because with my driver i launched the ball so high that the treetops were coming in and it really i mean i drove the ball like a god that week but i needed to <laughs> there were so many times where i had my heart in my mouth where i hit this shot i'm like oh that's cool <laughs> i remember <laughs> we, we, had, we we played a virtual match on that course on, uh, on our simulators last winter i remember and i was actually just in lake tahoe with my family and i did not play it i regret it i heard it's a lot of fun oh, i'm gonna post some go to my instagram guys i'm gonna post some pictures of tahoe of some of the tree line fairways from the back tees you'll just even even the the pictures themselves do not do it justice. They're so narrow. But yeah, if you had a path that was 10 degrees into out and you go and play Tahoe off the back tees, you haven't got a chance. You're not even getting it off the, off the tee, like 50 yards down there. It's just not happening. So, I mean, that is an extreme example. I haven't played many courses like that, but there are going to be scenarios like that that you come onto the golf course. So, you know, having the versatility to, to be able to change those things, The biggest one that I look at when I'm thinking, right, is it a good idea to change path is when you look at things like the spin rates and the launch of the ball or the overall trajectory of the shots. So say, for example, you get a big drawer of the golf ball with very low spin rates. So I'm talking about old John here. That's a, a scenario where you'd have to say, all right, are these spin rates hurting that player? a lot here because that ball is going to be coming in flatter trajectory. It's not going to be stopping as quickly. So you kind of have to weigh it up here and, and say, well, maybe, you know, you're losing, you're losing stopping power here and at least maybe learning more of a fadey or less drawy pattern would allow you to have that versatility if you came into a shot where it would need that. 
you know, really hard greens, pin on the front. I know we're not attacking pins, but you can still hit a shot that lands on the middle and stops quicker than landing on the middle and running out through the back of the green kind of thing. Yeah. And that was the scenario I was faced with, I don't know, six, seven, eight years ago. I was actually at Pete's Golf for a club fitting and I was getting a fitting with Kirk Agori, who's one of the fitters there. And he's also a great swing instructor, a really good tournament player. He played professionally when he was younger. And I was just kind of talking to him about wanting to play tournament golf. And he was like looking at me and all club fitting sessions there do eventually turn into some type of like swing discovery. And he kind of just flat out told me, he's like, your path is in danger territories. Like if you really (laughs) want to get better and compete in tournaments, like you're going to need to figure this out. And at that point I was struggling with some shanks. So it was, it was kind of a red alert situation, but he was right. I didn't have the shots required in more difficult conditions when the greens were firmer, when it was windier, me coming in with a missile hook into greens was yeah, it's good for distance because you have low spin and you can kind of just the ball goes forever. But at the same time, you lose that stopping power. So I put in work over the years to neutralize that. And I would say the opposite pattern for the slicer, it's almost even worse because that's such a distance killer. We've talked about that on other episodes. The conditions that create the banana slice are very bad for compression and distance and you're hitting these kind of like weak shots that spin a lot and don't go very far. So I think there are rewards for players who can neutralize their paths, but you have to go about it the right way, obviously. Yeah, so that drawer who has very low spin, can't control their stopping power, that's a a scenario where I might say, okay, let's neutralize this path a little bit more or work towards neutral. And as you mentioned, the the fader or the slicer, even if they can get their ball on the target, but their spin rate is incredibly high, especially with irons, usually a, a big fade will tend to lose more distance relative to someone playing the same draw shot because of how spin loft is affected. So yeah, if a fader has high spin rates, low smash factors, that's another scenario where we might move more towards a neutralized path to help them increase their smash factor, lower their spin rate and hit more neutral shots that, you know, they'll they'll hit it a lot farther that way in general. The other thing, what, what did you used to struggle with when you played the bigger draw, John? What was your angle of attack like? Do you remember? It was just super, super, super like shallow <laughs> to up. <laughs> I, I mean, super. I, I know. Yeah, I love saying super. Maybe we'll talk about this on an angle of attack episode, but in terms of like divot reading, I know divots can be misleading, but certainly over the last two, three years, I'm starting to take more like beaver pelt divots with my irons where I'm just taking massive divots that are flying 20 yards in front of me, whereas before I was a real picker of the golf ball. And I think that's a fairly good indication that I'm hitting more down on it with my irons and and less in to out. Again, I'm not someone who grinds over the launch monitor. It's just something I've noticed on the course, and I'm getting better outcomes, less curvature, more stopping power. And yes, I am taking more divots. Not that divots are a prerequisite for good golf, but that's just something I've noticed. Yeah, so swing direction, I'm going to, I'm not saying swing path here, swing direction and angle of attack are very closely linked. So the more we swing the club to the left, it tends to be the angle of attack will get steeper. If you were to just, 
get, yep. you know, do it on an all else being equal basis. What were you going to say, John? That makes perfect sense of what I'm seeing and experiencing on the golf course. Yeah. And so the part that you were in was the more you swing to the right, the shallower the angle of attack will become. And that's because it affects the low point of our swing, which has a direct correlation to angle of attack. So say you take, people can do this at home with their dinner plate, make sure you finished your food, otherwise it's all gonna go on the table and your significant other's gonna look at you weird. But take that dinner plate, tilt it 45 degrees so it represents a swing plane. Now, if you tilt that plate more to the right or turn the direction more to the right, you'll see the lowest point of the plate, the part that's touching the, the table, moves back. And if you tilt that plate more to the left, the part that's touching the table will move more to the left. So changing swing direction changes low point position. And so again, I know it's a lot of information trying to give people the visuals. The simplicity without a simple explanation of that is the more you swing to the left, the steeper the angle of attack will become. The more you swing to the right, the shallower the angle of attack will become. So when I see those things two, those two things tied in negatively, so in a player like yourself, if you are very shallow and you're swinging a lot to the right, well, we would have to say, well, wait there, you can't play with this shallow angle attack. You can't play elite golf with your shallow angle attack because you're not going to be versatile like out of things like rough or bad lies. You're also going to need to have excellent arc depth control which is why you were a picker of the ball and you were amazing at it, but you needed to be amazing. <laughs> yeah, I think it always comes down to the question we ask on a lot of episodes, what do you stand to gain and what do you stand to lose? And I think the players who are struggling more, like I was, I don't know, a two, three handicap, one handicap at that point looking to go deeper. I was okay with it, but for other golfers, like that opposite pattern, like the steep out to in digging into the ground, that's a red alert scenario, like for real. And that needs to be solved. And a lot of people listening to this are in that scenario where they're like, my path is extreme and I can't control arc depth. I'm too extreme of a angle of attack. So I think a lot of people need to make these changes out of necessity. It's not like a nice to have thing. It's all a matter of what can you get away with on the course? And can you make small little incremental changes over time, which is what I did over a matter of years where it just got a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better. It wasn't like this extreme change. That's how I chose to do it. Yeah. In your camp, I saw someone the other day who was even more extreme. They were swinging into out probably eight degrees and they were actually hitting about four degrees up on it with their irons. Now that's just not going to fly. And I, no, I you can't out with do that. Of course. Yeah. I mean, you can get away with it if you're on a tee or on a nice tight line. He was very good at getting away with it, but he was an extreme picker. He'd hit the bottom grooves every now and again, tiny drop in height, and he'd hit a huge fat shot. I'm talking like a foot behind it. And he's a coordinated guy. And so in that scenario, hitting plus five up on it and swinging plus eight into out, well, I moved his path more to the left to get him to swing more to the left and both numbers improved. His path became more neutral and his angle of attack became more negative because the more I got him to swing to the left, the more it moved his low point forwards, which affects angle of attack. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, you see a lot of beginners, especially swinging extremely left on it. They're slicers, so they're trying to swing left to keep it curving into play at least. 
but their angle of attacks then get very steep. And while that in itself is not the end of the world, what it does mean is they'll either be hitting very low ball flights or they'll have to early release to get some kind of trajectory on it. And then there's just there's a lot of spin loft there and they'll just be hitting very weak ball flights. So they're stuck between a low shot that doesn't go very far because it's not getting up in the air or a shot that gets up in the air, but it's got so much spin on it and so little smash that they're just not getting any distance. So again, if I see that end of the spectrum, someone swinging left, angle of attack incredibly steep, I can kill two birds with one stone just by making their swing direction more to the right. And I think what you stand to gain is you have more of a margin of error. Meaning like when you were talking about that me or that guy with the in to out hitting neutral or up on it, your margin of error is very small. Like you have to control the arc depth and and really, really well. Whereas if you can get that a little bit more into functional territory, less into out and a little bit more down, I think you have more options and more margin of error for your swing. Will you reduce some of those like really crappy shots versus being in extreme territory? Like I think that's what I stood to gain from it and what a lot of other golfers would stand to gain from shifting those patterns into better matchups. Definitely. And in terms of margin for error, it's about arc depth. So say you take two golfers and they both during the swing, if they make a hundred swings that, you know, everybody's going to swing slightly different from swing to swing. Well, if you move up and down a little bit, say you move up and down half an inch, both players are doing that. Well, the player who has their low point in a decent position, they're going to have better outcomes than the player who's hitting plus five up. Yeah, some of those are going to be worm burners on the bottom of the club face. And some of them are going to be a foot behind it. Yeah. So, and similarly, if someone's taking these huge deep divots, they're swinging left. If that person hits an inch behind versus someone swinging a little shallower, hitting an inch behind, the shallow person's on, on overall is going to have a tighter dispersion. So we don't want to be on either ends of the spectrum. This is why most pros are going to fall into that category of kind of four degrees to six degrees down angle of attack with their seven iron. There are reasons for that it's a good way of achieving a nice balance between optimal trajectory distance ground contact and these things will change with different scenarios if you put someone into rough or if you put someone into a tighter lie or someone in a situation where there's maybe a a little bit of rubbish behind them or say they're hitting off pine straw so basically bad lies and you make every tour pro ever hit off these bad lies constantly they will figure out instinctively that they need a steeper angle of attack to optimize these things. And vice versa, if you make them play off a tee constantly, they'll start to work towards more shallow angle of, angles of attack. So the scenario is going to actually dictate a lot of what evolves out of these players in terms of angle of attack and then swing direction. So this is I'm going down a, a whole other <laughs> podcast here, but these things are all linked in. And as I said, if you see a drawer with low spins, it's a sign to change the path. If you see a fader with high spins, it's a sign to change the the path and swing directions. If you see a a fader with steep angle of attacks, it's a sign. And if you see a a drawer with very shallow angle of attacks, it's a sign as well. So one of the questions we got on Twitter, and I think for the people who do have access to launch monitors, and maybe they do know their, their path numbers is, 
what's kind of the line in the sand in terms of extreme? Like, you know, I know th- there's no right answer. I think if you go on the TrackMan site, you'll see some quotes for saying, I don't like my players outside of six degrees into out or out to in. I still think you can play pretty good golf and be a low. I mean, I'm sure there's some scratch golfers out there with eight degree paths, but my thought on it is you can get away with it more with like the wedges and the higher lofted clubs. And when you get to like longer irons, hybrids, fairway woods, driver, and you're like really extreme, I think it gets harder there. And those are very influential clubs for scoring potential. What do you think about that? Like, what do you have a line in the sand for players or do you just kind of make your decisions individually? To your point, I'd say the long irons would be the hardest ones to manage offline paths because irons, when when you start to swing too much right or left, it's going to affect low point and then it's going to have ground contact errors. Yeah, you just can't ground do con- it. Yeah. It's just so hard. And I, I know this for years. It's just so hard to hit a good long iron, hybrid, whatever, like get that good contact and everything when your path's crazy. Exactly. And while you could get away with that big in-to-out path with your higher lofted clubs, when you get to the irons, you're having to close the face to the path so much, the spin drops so much that you probably won't be able to keep the ball in the air. Yeah, you got nothing. (laughs) Yeah, and that's you didn't play long irons for many years. Do you now? I have a four iron and a three hybrid. Woody got me into a five wood that I'm finally launching very high into the air, which has been very, that's actually been something I've been proud of that I can hit a five wood very high into the air now. But yeah, I think I put this in my book. I think long irons are like really good training aids because so many things have to go well at impact, ground contact impact location, face angle, path, all of it. Like it's such a stout test of impact skills. And if you can't pass it, those clubs, those lower lofted clubs on the course, Mark Brody proved this, they're how golfers separate themselves from one another. The further you get away from the hole and the longer the shots you have to hit is where golfers separate from one another. If you took a 15 handicap and a scratch golfer and had a putting contest or a chipping contest, maybe you wouldn't see that much of a difference. You put them at 190 yards in the fairway, you're going to find out very quickly who the better player is because the 15 handicap is going to be chunking a few, sculling a few, whereas the scratch golfer or even the pro, for example, is they're hitting a lot of them on the green or around the green and they're giving themselves easy chip shots or a bunch of 30, 40 footer two putt pars. That to me is where you need to solve the problem more because it just, as you get further away from the hole, I think the extremities work against you more and more. With a driver, you can probably actually get away with more because the ball's teed, teed up. up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yep. Okay, so say we take the example of the fade shot, the extreme fader, they tend to suffer with high spins. Well, with a driver, there's so much that you can tweak with the club to lower that spin rate back down that you can get away with it. This is how Bubba Watson hits these huge fades, but he probably uses a very, very low lofted driver to bring that fade, that spin back down and make it acceptable again. Yeah, I guess the the prerequisite there might be you need more swing speed to get away with it, though. Yeah, yeah, potentially, yeah. But yeah, it's, it's that case of, I think, the, like you said, the low irons are probably a really good litmus test to see how good the rest of your swing is. I know we used to say like a driver off the deck is a good challenge as well, but that can be a little bit too difficult sometimes. So do you have your line in the sand or no? Is there a number in your head where you're like, oh, we can't be there? 
In terms, yeah, in terms of acceptable ranges for path, I know Ryan Loudermilk asked this question. It's one of those things where I have, I have to check myself as well. Yes, I do have a preference here. I'd rather see it plus minus three, especially if a player wants to says I, I want to reach scratch level, elite level. Plus minus three. That's where most good players I see are. The vast majority, I'd say 95, 90% plus of good players are within those ranges. However, I have to check myself on that and say, well, there are some pros who have been outside of that. I don't, this is anecdote, but I believe Rory, when he was driving it amazingly, was probably close to like a plus eight, something like that with his driver. And I'm sure someone like a Zach Johnson is probably similar. I'm sure if you look at Bubba Watson, another great driver, when he's hitting his power fades, I bet he can probably be like a minus swing into the right with, you know, eight, eight degrees or more, I would imagine he can do. So there are players who can manage it. And so that's where my, that's where I would ask the next question. When I see a path that's offline bigger than plus minus three, I say, well, what are the other variables doing? How's their angle of attack? How's their launch? How's their spin? So if those variables are good, you know, we can always figure out the face to achieve the direction that we want. If you have, for most players, if they have a more extreme club path, does it put more pressure on face angle or not necessarily? No, I mean, if you, if you again, if you had a robot or two robots set up, and one is neutral club path, okay? So they're neutral club path and neutral face on average. So on average, they're hitting neutral shots. And then you have another robot set up swinging five degrees into out with a plus two face. So they're hitting a draw onto the target. Now, if you made those robots hit 100 shots and you gave them the same face variance, so you made the face vary from shot to shot, you know, plus, minus two, something like that, to show some general, you know, inconsistency that a human would have, the outcomes are going to be the same. Pretty much. There might be small variances there, but they would be pretty much the same outcome. It's just the robot that's swinging into out is going to hit more draw shots onto the target. So, no, it doesn't demand more from your other skills if you're if you're into out or out to in or neutral this is the argument against neutralizing your path or trying to neutralize your path is lots of people think oh once i get a neutralized path i'll never have a double cross again it's not true you will miss it left and right just as much as you did before you know it's all about face control the only thing that'll change is the shape of the balls that get there that's all you if you swing it more into out you can hit a draw shot onto onto the target whereas if you neutralize the path your on target shots are going to be straighter they're not going to curve as much in the air but your dispersion if you look at a bird's eye view of your dispersion is going to be the same yeah that's why i ultimately have come to the i mean i just now believe i mean we could argue about is it centered strike or face control like i think those are one and two one a and you know skills to have because you do have the opportunity to create functional shot curvature with any swing path as well as long as you can control the face i just don't know i haven't seen enough players like you have where i'm saying like oh if you had someone swinging 10 degrees out to in it's going to be harder for them to present the club face at five degrees versus someone who is at two degrees but it sounds like that just isn't necessarily the case but it does sound like some of the other things could struggle with the extremes like low point control attack angle that type of stuff 
gets more pressure on it. Is that a fair statement? Exactly. Yeah. If you if you start to swing more in to out, your low point's going to move back. So you're more sensitive then to up and down movements. You're going to hit fats and thins more. The guy who swings overly to the left and has a steep angle of attack and is hitting very deep divots, that player, if they hit just one inch behind it, they're going in so deep, they just it's going to be an awful shot. Whereas a shallower player can hit an inch behind it and get away with it more. So yeah, you don't want to swing too much to the extremes because it's going to affect ground contact consistent. I wouldn't say ground contact consistency, but the outcomes are going to change for any arc depth change. <laughs> that is definitely what I experienced. No question. Yeah. I, I had more... I used to be scared of ground contact, to be quite honest with you. It was something that really was in my head when I was on the fairway, a tight lie. Still bothers me probably on wedge play because I probably still have way too much in to out on my on my wedges. I still have to work on that. But I noticed as the ball flight straightened out, there was better ground contact and less worry about ground contact. So anecdotally, I, I felt that too. So let's take stock here. We've uh, hopefully we covered that very common question we got on Twitter about swing path extremities. And the follow up is now, well, how do I change it? Are we we ready to get to that point in the conversation? Yeah, yeah. I think we covered why to change it, what it is. So, yeah, how to change it. So, I've got a couple of different ways. I've got technical ways and I've got more instinctive ways. I'm going to start with the instinctive probably change that order but so instinctively probably the thing that i'm more famous for i don't want to say that i'm famous in the chasing scratch community is at least for the nail drill so the nail drill is if i've got a golf ball with a nail driven through it and i can simply angle that nail more left and right and ask the player can you hit it can you hammer the nail in this direction and when i'm there with a player i see it work What's the, what's the Anchorman quote? 60% of the time? It works, <laughs> it works. every time? Yeah. That is. Uh, you know, I'd say it's it's probably about a 90 to 95%. I'd say, it's, yeah, 95% of the time it works. Now, I might not be able to change an in-to-out player to a completely neutral path by this, but we move it in the right direction by using the nail drill. And I can just keep angling that nail more and more left until until that player neutralizes their path. And they go to me, oh my God, this feels incredibly strange. And I show them the numbers on the on the GC quad and they go, wow, says I'm still swinging in to out. Okay. And that's a huge thing, right? Because when we're changing things, anything in our golf swing, we have this feel of what is correct. And our feel can often be very wrong. You know, if you're swinging into out, if you're swinging 10 degrees into out all the time and you've done that all your life, a neutral swing is going to feel horrible to you. It's probably going to feel like you're jamming the club into your left leg. I know that's how it felt for me when I did it. So, yeah, it's helpful to have good feedback to get you over the hump of these discomforts of, of changing the swing direction or anything in your swing. Yeah, the nail direction, the nail drill is a very good one, very instinctive one. Everybody can hammer a nail in a different direction. (laughs) Do you like using any alignment rods as visual cues? Will will you use that with students or you just like them to kind of envision that in their mind? Yeah, that's the other thing you can do. Put some alignment rods down on the ground, make an almost a little 
railway track. That's what my pro used to do with me. So it gives me a visual of where I want the club to swing. You know, you can get people to focus on the blur of the club as it's swinging through impact, just doing lots of little practice rehearsals, focusing on the blur. You can do, I think I, I got this from Sean Foley, where you imagine dipping the club head in, in a bucket of paint and then imagine spraying the paint in a line in a different direction through impact. So again, very, very instinctive. You can imagine throwing the club in different directions as well. You know, throw the club more to the right, throw the club more to the left. You can actually, if you've got a big enough range and you're not scared of hitting people, getting sued, you can get them to physically throw it out there in different directions. People will sequence their body differently. They'll take different backswings. They'll definitely take different downswings in order to get there. So this is the concept of self-organization. You give someone a concept or an idea, an intention, like hammer the nail in this direction, and the movement changes. The movement changes without them thinking about it. Another great one for that is getting people in sand and just saying, right, splash the sand to the right, splash the sand to the left, and I'll usually video their swings as they're doing this. And then I'll show them. I'll say, look. You can change your entire swing motion just by thinking of splashing the sand more to the left or right. Look, you know, if, you, if they were a slicer and I ask them to splash the sand to the right, all of a sudden on the video, they're coming down on a shallower plane, their right elbows working in the position they've always wanted to, their body sequencing differently, their hips are moving first, they're tilting differently, they're shifting their weight differently. It's incredible what can change with just this one intention of splash the sand more left or right. Do you like the divot board for path feedback or yeah. is it or kind of confuse it? Because I've noticed that on working with that, it sometimes is a pretty good indicator of what your club path is doing. If you're, I guess the prerequisite is if you're <laughs> making contact further back on the board, you can see more of it versus if you're just kind of picking it in front of the ball a bit. Yeah. I mean, something I've used that was very similar before the divot board came out, just a little square of carpet. I place it on the ground and I just yeah, say, brush hit it, the carpet, yeah. brush the carpet and make sure the carpet moves more to the right or more to the left. <laughs> yep. changes their path. Because effectively, if that carpet is moving more to the right, at the point of contact, that club is going to be moving more to the right as well. So it's a great, again, a really instinctive way. It's, it's a cheap track, man, isn't it? I mean, it's not going to tell you the exact degrees, but saves you $25,000 because you can go and get some cheap sample carpet pieces if you wanted to. So a bit of carpet, sand, nail drill, throw in the club, even getting the divot. I know we've said that the divot doesn't show you club direction, club path. doesn't show you the exact number or the exact direction. However, if I ask 100 golfers to make a divot point more to the right, it's their path enough. is going to yeah. be more to the right. Yeah. So there's a way of changing your existing path. You don't need to know exact numbers with path as well. People say, oh, I need to get on a track, man. I need to see if my path is plus two or is it plus four. It's like, you know, you don't need to know that. You just need to know, is my ball curving too much? If it is, swing, swing more left or right to let, make it less curvature. That's the way I've done it. I've used ball flight as my feedback. I know a lot of people do have access to their club path numbers now. I would not chase numbers. I think that's a huge mistake for a number of reasons. And because of a lot of the other things Adam is saying, there's low point. Other things get affected when path changes. So you need to know how they match up. I think if you were someone who had 
we're dealing with the extreme, like if you were the 10, 12 type person and you could start seeing eight and seven and six and match up that feel and see the feedback and not worry about all the other numbers on the track man or the GC quad, like that could be helpful for some people, I think. But honestly, like the ball flight doesn't lie. If I'm looking at a big hook on the range, I'm like, okay, I need to figure out a way to get this club path less into out for me. I'm just trying to hit fades, right? <laughs> I'm just doing the opposite. That's worked really well for me over the years. I'm not saying that will work for everyone. And we've always talked about on the show is how doing the opposite can neutralize the inherent fault. That's something I've worked on for years. That's helped neutralize it. Adam said what we feel and what's actually happening are so different. So if I'm feeling like I'm hitting this massive slice, but I've really just moved my path from eight degrees to four degrees. Like that's a huge win. And if I could take that feel on the course, great. And it shows me like a tighter draw. I'm solving the problem in the right way. Whereas if I went to the course and like, let's say I was still hitting a big hook or, or turned into a big slice, then I'm like, all right, now I'm not heading in the right direction because my ball flight is telling me otherwise. So yeah, I think in terms of club path, the curvature of the golf ball is the best feedback you're probably ever going to get, in my opinion. Yeah, exactly. I mean, especially with irons, right? Obviously, with yeah. when you get to bigger headed clubs, there can be some gear effect on off-center strikes. But you'll know with your iron patterns, and it'll tend to remain consistent, relatively consistent with the driver as well. You know, if, you, if you're an out-to-in path with one, you'd be with the other. Would you say something like a seven iron would be a really good club to like work on that? Because the loft is low enough or a six iron, something like around there, I guess, depending on the actual loft of your clubs. But you're kind of in a good territory where you're not worrying about gear effect. And then it's not such a high loft that the curvature of the ball and start direction will be influenced more by the path. I, I think those not super low loft irons, but somewhere in between is like a good way to work on the curvature or at least that that's how i've done it yeah exactly it's like if you look at that picture of tiger woods's irons his eight iron was i believe beaten up completely because those irons the six seven eight they're the ones that have a nice balanced demand of all the skills you know your strike is still demanded still demanded your path and face is still demanded whereas when you go to something like a long iron uh, yes it it causes more curvature so you could say it's good it's good to work on curvature with those but you're very likely to be focused more on strike quality with those because it's so difficult to strike a long iron and then when you get with the woods there's that confusion a little bit with gear effect if you strike it out the toe then it's going to have more of a draw shape than it would otherwise so you can't it's hard to get the what your path is it's hard to judge what your path is so yeah six seven iron is what i tend to work on path and face with and like you said your your drill of just taking your shape and trying the opposite shape if you're instinctive and you can shape it different ways then if you're a drawer of the ball just spend a lot some of your time practicing fades so that your swing starts to bring some of that feel into play. It doesn't mean you have to go on the course and play with a fade, but say you are a drawer of the ball and you go off and practice an hour of fading and then go back to not thinking about it, your draw would probably be a little bit more neutralized now, unconsciously. 100%. I've had to do that many, 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 many times. I I always call it experimental practice. I know you have more appropriate terms for it, but 
being able to challenge yourself to do all of that in practice, not with the intention of bringing it out on the course, but can I hit a low swinging hook, which is easier for me to do, but can I also hit a big slice with an iron? Being able to do those helps establish reference points. We talked about that with face angle as well and in other episodes where if you can start the ball to the right of your target, to the left, down the line, maybe tighten that up a bit. You just keep establishing all these reference points in your golf swing because as we always talk about on the golf course, sometimes the problem is you see these things on the course and you don't have a solution for them because you're not practicing this way. You're not establishing these reference points. So if you're on the course and you're seeing that big slice, well, what's my feel to go in the opposite direction to neutralize it a bit and then see if that works, you know, if you're really struggling with that. So that's why this out-of-the-box, experimental, whatever you would like to call it type of practice is so beneficial because it kind of neutralizes the inherent problem. And at the same time, it builds up these internal feels, reference points. Golfers of Tiger always talked about his feels. Every great golfer of all time has said this one way or another, is that they they kind of have this like internal library of things that they can kind of go to when they need to make adjustments. Yeah, I think we're we're all on the same page. Even with someone more extreme like Scott Fawcett, we're on the same page as him in terms of we like on the course players to play a stock shape. If yep. your stock shape is on average, you know, a straighter pattern, go for it. If it's more of a fade or more of a draw, go for it. Where we slightly differ, I think, is at least in a portion of training, me and you, John, would like people to build some reference points for what does more left feel like as a swing direction what does more right feel like as a swing direction not so that you can go out on the course and start saying right i need to draw this one here and the next shot i need to fade this one here you know that's not the goal with it it's just to build some feels that you can use to calibrate your shot patterns later on later down the line so yeah all these different things trying different shot shapes is a instinctive way Bubba Watson uses just visualizing the start direction of a shot and visualizing the curvature. So Bubba probably doesn't even know what he does with the swing. He just, he sees his little, I believe anecdotally again, he sees these little windows in space and says, right, I want the ball to start through that window and curve this direction. And when I taught at IMG Academies for a while, I came across loads of kids who could shape it any direction who didn't know how they were doing it. They knew nothing about path and face. They just grew up in South America, beating balls around trees and having fun with it, shaping with their friends, hitting hooks, hitting fades. They knew what it felt like. They just didn't know what they were doing. So if you're that way, if you're that type of player, you can sometimes just visualize the trajectory you want and the path and face may self-organize for you. Yeah, I think... I agree with that is that I want people to play stock shots on the golf course, but I think you can enhance the effectiveness of your stock shot when it eventually, and it will get out of whack is by practicing outside of the box. You can get it back to the stock shot by having those different skills, but we might be beating a horse to death there, so to speak. Are those all of our kind of instinctual solutions i'm not the guy with the technical ones you you can do one more and then maybe we'll move on to the next topic yeah one more would be uh, and this falls under two categories i suppose constraints so constraints are where you put things in the way it could be it could be rules it could be physical objects it could be the environment 
when I was in Spain, our range used to be very strong wind in the morning and then it would die down in the afternoon. And the wind would usually be right to left. And so you can imagine when people are they're practicing in the morning and the wind's right to left, they start to learn to open the face and do things that make the shot more to the right. And so just by practicing in a wind that pushes your ball to the left, you will develop unconsciously a pattern that goes more to the right. So then when they came in the afternoon and the wind had died down, no, all the shots were missing it. to the right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they block slicing it. Yeah. And so this is something you can do. So the rule here is go to a side of the range, which actually encourages the shape you don't want. So if you've been missing left, 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 if you're on the, on the course and you've had a lot of left misses, you've had a lot of hooks, go and find a part of the range where the wind is actually pushing the, the ball more to the left. It's right to left because you'll learn through block practicing, you'll learn to open the face more or get the path to, you know, be in a position that makes the pattern go more to the right. And then that when you take that wind away, you'll be left with that pattern more. So that's a, an environmental constraint. I have that. I have a full video on that in my next level golf program as well. Little plugs there. You can put trees in the way as well. So you could say it puts people in different scenarios and say, right, you have to bend it, start it left and fade it around this tree as well. I think it helps for most people to have a little bit of knowledge about path and face. But again, if they're just practicing that scenario, they start to visualize things differently. One thing that can be used that I don't use a lot, I don't tend to like it, is the placing things on the ground like club head covers or baskets to give like a channel for people uh, to yeah, swing Oh, yeah, the physical through. barrier one. Yeah, some people like there's some training aids and stuff that force you not or like a water bottle people use. Yeah, I use it a lot for strike issues. If someone's got heel or toe, I'll place a ball one side or the other. Yeah. But I don't tend to use it for club path or swing path issues. In my experience, I just haven't found that much success. It's great when the constraint is there and you take it away and, and the, the motion's gone. So it might be one of those things, if you do a lot of practice with it, it unconsciously ingrains itself. But I've also found that people can cheat those things a lot. Like say you put something on the outside of the ball to stop a player swinging out to in. Lots of them will just start to toe it <laughs> instead of actually change their swing path, club path. So it can be a, a little awkward. I'd want that to at least be supervised by a coach if you're doing that now, i liked your suggestion earlier switching the side of the, sometimes i will go it's easy for me to be on the left side of the range because then i feel like i can curve the ball back to my target but sometimes i intentionally go to the right side of the range because that's more uncomfortable for me i will do that sometimes just to it's a constraint you know it was in harvey penny's book the little red book with the left the golfer under the tree for an hour and he comes back figured out how to keep it lower probably so the, these things are helpful but yeah i've never done the physical stuff i don't want to smash a water bottle open at the range <laughs> never even tried it so we decided to cut the conversation off there that will be part one of our club path and swing direction conversation you can check back for part two next week and you can find Adam at adamyounggolf.com. You can check out my new book, The Four Foundations of Golf, which is available on Amazon and other online retailers. Thanks for everyone's support, and we will see you next week with part two.